Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. Today's episode is a little bonus because of the holidays. They're coming like every single year and we wanna talk about alcohol for a second. This is a hot, hot topic. It's constantly being brought up. I get asked about alcohol, so let's unpack it. How can you fit alcohol into your diet especially around this time of year and just in general year round because it is a part of socializing and alcohol is enjoyable for a lot of people. We wanna be able to have it. We don't wanna feel deprived, but at the same time, it's no secret that alcohol can negatively impact your hormones, your menstrual cycles. And so today I wanna share some of that info so that you can be aware and understand how it impacts you, but also give you practical strategies to enjoy alcohol because this is the down to earth PCOS podcast, right? We want to keep things practical here, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't jeopardize your fertility, your heart health, and your overall well-being. Let's dive in. The first thing I want to do is help you understand how the body metabolizes alcohol. So when we consume alcohol, our liver works extra hard to break it down. This process involves the conversion of alcohol into different substances. We're not going to get into the chemistry of it, but just know that as far as your body is concerned, alcohol is a toxin, okay? So the byproducts of metabolizing alcohol are toxins. And the problem with this is that, of course, other than the damage that can be caused to the body from that exposure to these toxins, and I can tell you that when I worked in a hospital and we would see people coming in who had alcohol issues, alcohol abuse problems, the damage that was done to their body, to their cells, brain damage, and the exposure to all of these toxins over time can really mess up your body. And so other than the fact that we're exposed to these toxins when we're drinking on a regular basis and when drinking becomes a, a regular you know, day-to-day thing, or we're doing it in amounts that are excessive, even if it's not every single day, we see that, that damage from the toxins, but also your liver is busy processing that alcohol. And while it's busy doing that, it can't perform other essential things, other essential functions like regulating your hormones, okay? So this can obviously lead to hormone imbalances that are affecting different aspects of women's health, including the menstrual cycle. The main concern here is related to estrogen accumulation. So when the liver processes alcohol and it can't detoxify estrogen, which is one of its main jobs and kind of remove it from the body, that estrogen often gets recycled because it's kind of like backed up and it can't get into the liver to get detoxified. It kind of starts accumulating and it gets recycled back into the body. And as a result, you can see things like worse PMS, inflammation, heavy painful periods, and even things like insomnia and thyroid issues. Not to mention many women with PCOS struggle with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, regardless of their, their alcohol intake. This is something that's not related to alcohol. That's why it's called non-alcoholic, but high insulin levels and triglycerides can cause liver dysfunction and fatty liver disease and drinking alcohol can often make it worse. So it's kind of adding insult to injury as far as the liver. The other thing that's happening as alcohol is being metabolized is it's impacting the brain. 
Alcohol specifically impacts the region of the brain known as the hypothalamus. That's an area that plays a big role in regulating hormone production. So excessive alcohol consumption can definitely disrupt the communication between the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, and that can lead to irregular menstrual cycles and amenorrhea, which is the absence of menstruation. Now, amenorrhea is a different condition. It's not related to PCOS necessarily. Sometimes those two are confused. It's more related to under eating and again, drinking alcohol and over exercising. So I just want to draw that distinction here, but certainly excessive alcohol intake, regular intake of, you know, alcoholic beverages can lead to brain issues and disrupt that connection between your brain and your hormones. So of course, this means in turn that excessive drinking can decrease fertility. It can, again, further disrupt the ovulation and the menstrual cycle and also reducing egg quality. So if you're someone who is in the preconception period, you're looking to get pregnant, you want to maximize your egg quality so that when you do get pregnant, the pregnancy is viable, the embryo can get implanted and all of those things. And we know that even moderate alcohol intake has been associated with decreased fertility. So this is something to be mindful of and be very careful with. There are studies showing just how impactful it is. One study showed that women who drank more than 14 servings of alcohol a week, which may sound like a lot, but it's just two drinks per night, had an 18% decreased chance of conceiving. Next up, I want to talk about heart health. We recently talked about it as it relates to regulating your cycle and getting regular consistent periods, how protective that is against heart disease. We also know that alcohol has an impact on heart health. So some studies do suggest that, and you've probably heard this, alcohol consumption can have benefits, specifically wine on cardiovascular disease risk. There are a couple of things that I want you to know here. So a lot of these studies were studies where people consumed alcohol moderately. So they didn't drink every single day. And when they did drink, drinking was part of their lifestyle from a young age. So it's not like they added wine and all of a sudden became healthier because of the antioxidants in wine. That's not how it works. This was part of a healthier diet overall. It was mostly in the Mediterranean. And these people did other things that contributed to their health, including what they ate and how they moved and how they socialized. Like we know that there's a connection between eating together and having a rich community life and family life, which is also part of the Mediterranean lifestyle. So I don't want to extract the wine as one single thing that's used like medicine, which is how it's portrayed in the media. Sometimes this is not a situation where we would say alcohol is so great. Let's all start drinking it right now. No, it's more looking at the bigger picture of populations. And all of these studies were observational, meaning they didn't take two groups of people and one group drank wine and the other didn't. And they concluded that the people who drank wine were healthier and had less heart disease risk. That's not what happened here. They just looked at the entire population and observed their habits and their health status. Okay. So they looked at the bigger picture. They looked at the populations that drink wine and they noticed that they have less heart disease risk and incidence. But Again, there were other things going on in their lifestyle, so we don't necessarily have the ability to isolate the wine and say, this is a healthy thing, everybody should be doing this. Plus, 
There's been emphasis on things like resveratrol, which is one of the antioxidants in wine and saying how important it is for health and how protective it is as an antioxidant. It's in grapes and it's believed to have anti-inflammatory benefits, but we know that the amount that you get from a glass of wine or two is not really making a dent. Okay. So it's not going to make a difference in terms of inflammation just by, you know, so I, a lot of people are like, well, wine is so great for you. It has antioxidants. Yes, but it probably doesn't have enough. You would have to drink a ton of wine every single day, maybe connect yourself to a wine IV in order to get that benefit. So there are benefits to resveratrol, but it's probably more of a situation where a supplement would be beneficial as opposed to trying to get it from wine, as exciting as that may be. On the flip side, there is plenty of evidence that excessive drinking can have negative effects on your heart. It can raise blood pressure. It can worsen insulin resistance, which of course is related to the metabolic syndrome that contributes to heart disease risk. And it can weaken the heart muscle over time. So the consensus now in the health space with recent studies and more updated research that was done is that really alcohol is not that great for us. The benefits are not outweighing the risk. And especially for PCOS, where insulin resistance is a problem, heart disease risk is high, alcohol is something to be very cautious with. Now, since we're talking about insulin resistance and I touched on it, I want to talk about blood sugar. So from a blood sugar perspective, and as we know, blood sugar is instrumental in balancing your hormones, getting good control of your blood sugar. This is something that's really important to work on. But when people drink a lot of alcohol, they oftentimes do other things that worsen blood sugar control. So alcohol in and of itself does not require insulin to be processed. It actually gets absorbed in your stomach. It doesn't complete the journey throughout your whole digestive tract. It is absorbed in your stomach, which is by the way, why you should never drink on an empty stomach. You want to try to slow down that process a little bit. And then it goes to the liver like I mentioned earlier, to get detoxified. So it's processed more like a toxin than a food. And in your digestive tract, once alcohol is absorbed, it doesn't really require insulin. It doesn't necessarily raise blood sugar a whole lot. Alcohol, from a nutrition perspective, acts more like a fat. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily raise your blood sugar. However, when you mix alcohol with juices, sodas, sour mixes, dessert wines, whatever it is that you have with your shot of alcohol, that can, of course, increase blood sugar and insulin. And sometimes there's even a rebound effect. So I'm going to explain what it means. But Think about Red Bulls, think about rum and Coke, think about margaritas and mojitos and all of those things that have added stuff in them. That's usually where your blood sugar can get impacted. And also higher carbohydrate beverages like beers and of course mixed drinks like daiquiris and pina coladas and all of those types of things, which I know is not super common during the holidays, but year round. Think about summer, think about vacations. I'm going to talk about some practical tips in a minute, but just think about the mix-ins and the add-ins that go into those drinks. Now, what's happening is that, of course, a lot of sugar that's added can raise blood sugar, can raise insulin levels. But as blood sugar spikes, 
insulin also spikes and lowers that blood sugar. But then what happens is in the liver, which is, you know, when your blood sugar goes low, your liver is supposed to kick into action and release some stored glucose to keep that blood sugar stable. Your liver, as you may remember, is preoccupied with metabolizing your alcohol. So if you're drinking a margarita that has tequila in it, but also sour mix, your sour mix is going to raise that blood sugar level. Your insulin is going to come in and then lower blood sugar levels. And then your liver is supposed to kick in and start releasing slowly additional glucose that's stored there in order to keep your blood sugar under control. But your liver is busy processing that tequila from the drink. And so again, this doesn't happen so dramatically with just one drink here or there. I want you to think about weekends and holidays where you may have three or four drinks over the course of an evening or even a day and what that means in your body, how that is processed in your body and the impact that it has. So if your liver is not available to keep sugar stable and kind of drip out the glucose to keep it, you know, in the normal ranges, because there was so much insulin released, and especially with insulin resistance, we see an accumulation of insulin in the bloodstream, there could be hypoglycemia. Your blood sugar can get too low, which is why a lot of times people wake up ravenous the morning after drinking is because you become a little bit hypoglycemic at night. And so if you drink and then you have that, you know, little spike in blood sugar, but then it dips, you may feel faint, you may feel shaky, you may feel sweaty. And oftentimes these are symptoms that can be confused with the effects of alcohol, but there could be a double whammy here. That could be the impact of alcohol and there could also be blood sugar fluctuations and specifically hypoglycemia. Staying with the metabolic effects of alcohol on the body, alcohol can also increase hunger. It can make you hungrier. And I want you to think about the things that are served in bars or where you go to parties or holiday gatherings. And, you know, those things are generally not the healthiest. And if you're drinking alcohol, you have increased hunger. You also have reduced inhibition and judgment. So, that type of food can become very appealing and drinking alcohol often comes with overeating and even binging. So just something to think about, right? It's not just the drinking of the alcohol, it's how it's impacting you and how it changes your behavior around food. You probably already know that period problems are super common with PCOS, but you know what else is common? Doctors telling women to not worry about it until they're ready to get pregnant and just take birth control pills in the meantime. And that is a big mistake. In fact, that is probably the worst advice for PCOS. Your period is your body's report card. And if you're not currently at least a B plus student, we gotta talk. This is true by the way, even if you're not thinking about having kids now or ever. Getting a healthy period is important for many other reasons except fertility, which is why it needs your attention right now. If you're experiencing long cycles that are more than 35 days apart, if you have heavy, painful bleeding, spotting, or short cycles with bleeding that comes every two to three weeks, it's a clear sign that your hormones need a little TLC. And while birth control can provide temporary relief, it's not a long-term solution. 
What does work 100% of the time in the long run is changing your diet, taking the right supplements, and learning the healthy habits that will help you ovulate and get a healthy, regular period like clockwork every month. And that is exactly what we do inside my period return plan program. This is a 90-day program to getting your period back without relying on birth control or other medications. Inside the period return plan, you're gonna get a step-by-step plan to ovulate and bring back your period. It includes, of course, meal plans, live trainings, private visits with me for specific support and customized guidance, as well as a customized supplement regimen so that you can solve your period problems for good by the time we're done. And I'm doing something I've never done before. I am giving you my period back guarantee. This means that if you don't get your period back by the end of the program, we'll continue working on it until you do for no additional charge. Yep, you're gonna get additional support from me until you meet your goals for absolutely free. I want you to go and check out the details and see what you can expect inside the period return plan. So just go to daphnachazen.com slash period return. daphnachazen.com slash period return. You can see all the program details there. You can sign up right on that page. Or if you have more questions and you're not sure if it's the right fit, book a call with me and we'll chat about it. daphnachazen.com slash period return. Go check it out. And I cannot wait to work with you inside the program. The other thing is that sleep can get majorly disrupted. So when people drink alcohol, they're quicker to fall asleep, but they're never getting to that high quality REM sleep. They're not reaching the deep sleep state. And of course that has a zillion different implications on your hormones, on your insulin and blood sugar, on your mood, how you function the next day. And so that's something to think about for sure, especially if you're someone who's already struggling with sleep. And I have many clients who stopped drinking because of their sleep problems. And I can tell you it is life-changing, absolutely life-changing, the quality of sleep, the amount of sleep that they get, and just our overall mood and functioning day-to-day has gotten so much better without the drinking. And They don't miss it. They really don't miss it because they feel so good. And, you know, once they stopped putting emphasis and importance on the alcohol, it kind of became a non-issue. And that's a great thing. Of course, if you're ready for it and something that you choose to work on, I think it's a good area of focus. All right. So I think we can all agree that alcohol is something to reconsider if it plays a big role in your life. And by big role, I mean, you drink alcohol regularly, you drink maybe two glasses of wine every night or most nights of the week, or maybe on the weekends, you drink a few drinks, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. I had a client, her name is Sarah, many years ago, and she was going out Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, eating out all three of those weekend nights and drinking multiple drinks. And when we realized how it's impacting her, not just related to weight and blood sugar regulation, but just like her inability to then recover from it on a mental level come Monday, she realized that that's something that she needs to taper off and she was ready for it. Not, not initially, but eventually she tapered off slowly and she was ready to reconsider drinking. And so I think that 
if you're someone who, again, you have to prioritize what's happening every single day. If this is not something that you do regularly, don't worry about it. There's no reason to avoid alcohol. And there's certainly no reason to feel deprived or like you're someone who can never drink. That's not good on a mental level. But if you're someone who is drinking regularly and you're doing something like Sarah is doing where every weekend you're taking in excessive amounts of alcohol, and we're going to talk in a second about what excessive is, this may be something that you want to prioritize because again, if you change everything else, but this stays the same, you're likely not going to see good results because it's something that's happening frequently enough where it's making an impact and it is so damaging for your hormones. So I rarely say something is so bad and damaging, but I think that with alcohol, we can confidently say that it's just not good for you. There are really no benefits to it other than of course, the fun and enjoyment of it, but is it really something that cannot be replaced with something else that brings you joy and pleasure? That's what I think is an important question to think about. And everybody's going to make their own decisions. There's no right or wrong answer here. But I think that if it's a regular occurrence in your life, it's worth reconsidering. I personally don't drink that much. And it's something that just doesn't make me feel great. I do drink and I enjoy alcohol from time to time, but it's not a big part of my life. Certainly not during the week. If I go out, yes, I'm going to get a cocktail or wine or whatever, but I notice that it makes me very lethargic. It gives me migraines. So like as I crossed the 40 mark a couple of years ago, things have gotten a lot more complicated and alcohol is just like not something that makes me feel good. And so I recently went on like a girl's trip to a winery and we had some wine and I can tell you like I could not drink as much as the other ladies, just like physically, I didn't feel good. And so thankfully we only got like flights or I got flights. I don't know what the other people were doing because I wasn't paying attention at some point, but it was fun. It was nice, but it's not something I can do on a regular basis. And at home, I rarely drink and you know, maybe on a Friday night, I would have a glass of wine. I really do enjoy beer more than wine, I have to admit. But, you know, this is just like not something that I do regularly on a personal level because of how it makes me feel. I just noticed that it's it's not good for my body and I don't necessarily enjoy the taste all the time. So there are very specific drinks that I do like. But anyway, I just wanted to share, like for me personally, I try to limit it and I really focus on how I feel. And that gives me the motivation to not drink for no reason. You know, like sometimes we do things for just like to fit in or in social situations because everybody's doing it. But for me, turning inward has always been like really important to think about how is this going to make me feel? Do I like this? And so I think that I just wanted to mention that and share that because I know that if, you know, this is a habit that you have, it could be hard to change. It's not something that can happen overnight, but I do think thinking about how it makes you feel, thinking about the impact that it has on your hormones and what your goals are and where you want to see yourself in terms of your PCOS and your health is something that can be helpful when you're trying to change those habits. All right. So let's talk a little bit about practical tips. Like how do you fit in alcohol without messing up your hormones without seeing those negative impacts long-term. So I'm going to give you five tips that I always give my clients. The first one is let's try to keep it to no more than five servings per week. So a serving is five ounces of alcohol, a 12 ounce bottle of beer, an ounce and a half of liquor, 
five servings per week spread out over a few days. So we know that it's better for someone to have one drink every day for five days than to have five drinks in one night. Why is that? Related to something that I said before with the liver, we don't want to overload the system. We don't want to create this backup because then again, the body sees the alcohol as a toxin and you're going to have this almost like over toxicity. And this is why, by the way, people throw up because the body rejects the alcohol. And so it's better to spread it out than to binge drink. And anything more than three drinks in one sitting is considered a binge. And so the number is important, but also spreading it out over the course of a few days is also very important. We want to make sure that we're choosing mostly lower sugar options, things like dry red or white wine, and there's no difference. Like one is not better than the other. Red is good. White is good. Just make sure it's not super sweet. And of course, mixed drinks, things that are made with sodas, juices, added syrups and mix, you know, sour mix and things like that. Sour mix is essentially simple syrup. It's water, sugar, and lemon. Okay. So there's a lot of sugar added to those things. So all the cocktails that are made with those add-ins can have a lot of sugar and calories as well as carbohydrates. So the best thing is to choose distilled alcohol and something that's non-caloric like seltzer. Look, vodka and seltzer, fine. Rum and Diet Coke, fine. Right. So as well as light beer light beer, and there are really great ones now. And by the way, when I was doing this winery tour, there were also lower alcohol wines, and I know there are lower alcohol beers now. So that could be an option. They tend to be, first of all, lower calorie. They have, of course, less alcohol and less sugar added. So that's something to think about. But lighter beers are great. There's Michelob Ultra Light and Bud Light and all of those beers, they tend to be lower calorie, lower carb. We talked about cocktails. We talked about frozen beverages like daiquiris or margaritas. Again, those tend to have more, like think about a smoothie. When something is frozen and mixed up like a smoothie, it's condensed. So it contains more alcohol and it contains more sugar. So if you're having a frozen margarita, that's typically going to have more sugar and carbs and calories and alcohol than on the rocks, okay? So just something to think about there. Always, always have alcohol with food, not on an empty stomach. Alcohol can interfere with your liver's ability to keep blood sugar stable and it can cause hypoglycemia. And it's, of course, like I said before, it's absorbed in the, in the stomach. So when blood sugar goes too low and you feel weak and shaky and faint, you know that the alcohol was absorbed too quickly. And so having food in your stomach can slightly slow this process down. It can slow the absorption down so you don't feel the effects of alcohol too quickly and your blood sugar doesn't rise and fall quickly either. So make sure that you're eating before drinking, ideally, or with your drink, if that's what you can do. Sip your alcohol very slowly. Let's limit shots. Why don't you pace yourself with other beverages that you enjoy? So I always tell people you can make a spritzer. Like if you have wine, add some seltzer to it so you can it can last you longer and you sip on it over time. Or if you are having a cocktail and you plan to have more than one, make sure that you have a couple glasses of either water or seltzer in between. First of all, to hydrate because alcohol can dehydrate you. And secondly, to pace yourself and slow down a bit. 
And then the last thing I always say is get an accountability buddy, verbalize your goal, say it out loud. How many drinks do you want to have? And that's going to keep you accountable. It's going to be out there. And then you're going to ask someone to hold you to it, help you stick with it. This is this person's job. Maybe it's your partner, spouse, best friend, whomever. I don't care. Just make sure that you're keeping the communication open about it, that you tell them to help you and that you put some boundaries around it. Again, especially if it's been an issue in the past, let's do something different so that you can improve your habits and feel better about your health. Okay. So verbalizing your goal, communicating what you're trying to do, make sure someone helps you and they're not enabling you in a way that doesn't help. And I think that's going to not only improve the communication and make sure that you have the right support system, but it's also going to keep you on track because once you're accountable, you said it out loud, people are there to kind of watch you and, and make sure that you're following through with your own promises and goals. Okay. So a little pressure, I think it's a good thing in this situation. And last, but certainly not least, you want to make sure that you're staying aware of the interaction between alcohol and medications, especially with metformin. Metformin, there's a known interaction with alcohol where it increases the risk of a condition called lactic acidosis. And so if you're taking medications, it's never a good idea to drink alcohol with that, to mix meds and alcohol. But of course, with metformin, be extra careful and consider asking for help. If this becomes too difficult, if you feel like controlling alcohol intake is impossible to do on your own, ask for help, get the help that you need so that you can be successful and not let this continue with you feeling terrible about it and the negative impacts that it has on your health. Okay. So I wanted to give you some of these tips and information before the holidays so that you can plan and think about it in advance. I wish you the best holiday season. Enjoy it. Enjoy the foods that you love. And if you decide to enjoy alcohol, do it in moderation and with some of the tips that I shared with you today. And I will see you here again next time. Bye. Bye.